I want to ask you this morning as we begin, when was the last time the word joy crossed your lips? When was the last time you felt joy? When was the last time you used the word joy in a sentence? Several years ago, when I was still in business and I was preaching on the side, I was going to be preaching a text that talked about the joy of God. And um, so I thought I would survey uh, the people I encountered during the week. And I surveyed customers, and I surveyed vendors, and I surveyed my boss, I surveyed my coworkers. I even talked to the guy at the drive-thru at the Taco Bell. And I asked him that question. When was the last time the word joy crossed your lips? Now, as most of you might suspect, from the men, pretty much I got a blank stare. I mean, the men did horrible at this. Some of the men would finally stammer around and, and finally get, choke something out about their family, right? Like that was the right answer. But the men did terrible. Now, the women did a lot better. Can you imagine what the women might have said? Pardon me? Children. The birth, the birth of a child, and the other one was marriage. Being, being proposed to and or their wedding day. So the women did far better than the men. I think it was like the men thought, well, joy is not a manly thing, so I'm not going to own up to it, right? So I, the men were just really, really bad. Let me, let me define the word joy for you. I'm sure you already know, but here's what the dictionary says. Feelings of happiness, pleasure, delight, gladness. I think elation is, is a good synonym. Elation, bliss, ecstasy, thrill, and wonder. Now, joy is a word that's in uh, most languages, but it's not a word that's often employed. It's just not a word that's often employed among us human beings. Now, the Bible is different. The Bible is replete with this theme. It's a pervasive theme, this, this theme of joy. And when you look up the Greek word that's translated joy, here's some of the things you find from the, from the Bible. It carries this sense of perfect joy, pure joy, unblemished joy, triumphant joy, exuberant joy. I think Nelson now used that word earlier this morning. One scholar calls it spiritual intoxication. This is what the Bible is talking about. God-given and God-driven joy. Now, some of you may or may not know this, God made the human heart for what? Himself. He made it for Himself. He made your heart for Himself. And God built us for God-sized joy. And you guys know this. Most of you are old enough in this room to know this truth. Nothing else will fill up your heart like God will. Philosophers agree that all men everywhere, every place, and every time in history have sought for their own happiness. This is what men do. This is how God wired us. God wired us to be joyful, happy creatures. Now, we know what happened in the garden. We fell from God's perfect design. But men seek for their joy, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is where men seek it. 
The problem is where men seek joy. I'm going to read you a quote here from uh, C.S. Lewis. Any of you guys familiar with C.S. Lewis? You guys know who C.S. Lewis is? Okay, great, great Christian uh, apologist um, in the, the last century in England. But he says this about mankind. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, etc., etc., when infinite joy is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are like ignorant, uh, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So I want to ask you this question. Are you too easily pleased? Now, that's an odd thing to be accused of, don't you think? It's almost like he's saying, you guys don't expect enough. You don't want enough. You don't desire enough. You're messing around with sin, and you could have me. This is what the gospel's about. God says, you could have me. You could have me. I think Lewis is right. I think most of us have settled for meager and short-lived pleasures when omnipotent and sovereign joy is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to see in John chapter 2, you heard Nelson read the text, Jesus is going to perform His first miracle. And as I shared with you earlier, I've heard this miracle critiqued as somewhat inconsequential. Well, I'm going to tell you, not only is it not trivial, it is perfect. It is the perfect message that Jesus Christ meant to send in His first miracle. Okay, the text tells us that on the third day, chapter 2, verse 1, <clears throat> on the third day there was a wedding in Canaan. What third day are we talking about? We're talking about the, the third day after uh, the five disciples have hooked up, we talked about last week, with Jesus Christ. We've got, we've got Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. They've hooked up with the Lord Jesus Christ and they've walked from uh, Palestine to Canaan and they've arrived here in Galilee and there is a wedding here. Now, Canaan is a small village just uh, above the hills of Nazareth, probably eight miles from where Jesus grew up. And I want you to, just for a little background, I want you to know that Jesus is probably kin. He's probably kin to this family because we see Mary have a, have a place of leadership in the festivities here. So, uh, let me tell you just a little bit before we begin about a Hebrew wedding. It was a big, 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 really, really big deal. Okay? So, they closed the shop. They put away the plow, and they partied for three to seven days. It kind of depended on how much money the family had. But it was a big deal in uh, Hebrew society, first century uh, Judea. And as you know, uh, first century, life was coarse, life was hard, there was much poverty, and so when there was a good party, everybody went. And this was the premier social occasion in a Hebrew community in the first century. So everything stopped, and the party began. The couple would not leave on honeymoon. They would have open house and everyone would come. Okay? So that's kind of the, kind of the setting. Now, notice in verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. <coughs> now, this is a serious problem. Many of you know hospitality is a sacred duty in the Middle East and they have run out of wine. This is a, a serious problem, and uh, this would cause great humiliation 
for the family. So Mary knows about this, and Mary comes to Jesus with this problem. And you can hear it now, I think if you read closely in the text, she comes to Jesus and say they have no wine. And you can almost hear Mary, at least I can. I hope I don't, I don't think I'm reading between the lines. It's almost like Mary's coming with a different agenda. And Jesus knows it too, and you can hear it in his answer in verse 4. But it's almost like she's saying, I know who you are. I know you're the Son of God. I know who you are. I heard what John the Baptist said about you. I heard that he said you're the Lamb of God. And here you've shown up with five disciples in tow. And I, hear, and I think Mary is saying, yes, this family is out of wine, but I want you to declare yourself. I know who you are. I want you to declare yourself. I want you to declare yourself as Messiah. You can kind of hear this undercurrent in the dialogue. She was eager for Jesus to show who she knew he really was. He was the promised one, the Messiah. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Okay, I want to say a couple of things about Jesus' response. First of all, woman is a courteous title. If you look at the Greek here, it connotes being a respectable lady, a grand and respectable lady. It is the same title that Jesus used from the cross when he spoke to John about his mother. And when he spoke to her, he called her woman. So this is a, a title of respect. But one thing Jesus is beginning to do here in verse 4, he calls her woman for a reason. He doesn't call her mother, he calls her woman. Jesus is going to begin to transition the relationship. Okay? From mother-son to savior-sinner. This is a big deal. This is a big deal theologically. Jesus is going to begin to transition the relationship. That that mother-son relationship was, was incredible and it was wonderful. But even more important is the Savior-Sinner relationship. Creator-created relationship. And Jesus is saying to Mary, going forward, our relationship will change. Our relationship is going to change. This is one of the things I think is very clear here that Jesus is saying to His mother. Uh, Do you remember over in Matthew 12, 46-50, Jesus told His mother, uh, Jesus was told that His mother and His brothers were were uh, seeking after him, and Jesus said this awesome thing. Who is my mother? And who, who are my brothers? But then he said this. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is saying to Mary, you are my earthly mother, but our relationship is going to change. You need to see me as your God. You need to see me as your Savior. And this is one thing that Jesus is saying to his mother here as he says, woman. And he's not repudiating his his earthly ties. He's simply saying the relationship of sinner-savior is infinitely above the relationship of mother and son. The second thing I want to say to you is, Jesus says, what do I have to do with you? Again, this is very hard to translate from the Greek. It's it's an idiom. Do you know what an, an, an idiom is? It's just a figure of speech peculiar to a a people. And so this is an an idiom in the language. It's not a discourteous or rude response. 
The literal translation would be, what do we have in common on this issue? Jesus is saying, what do I have to do with you on this issue? In today's language, we could say it like this. Do not worry. Leave this to me. I will settle this in my own way. This is in effect what the Lord Jesus is saying. <coughs> Thirdly, I want, the thing I want to say to you about his response. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, as we go through the Gospel of John, if you've read through the Gospel of John before, you know that Jesus is going to say this about six or seven times through the Gospel of John. Jesus is on His Father's timetable. He's not on Mary's timetable. He's not on Peter's timetable. He's not on Nathaniel's timetable. He's on His Father's timetable. He is on a divine timetable. And Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. And He gives Mary this very personal message. I'm on my Father's timetable and my hour is not yet here. But he says this too. And you've got to love this about Jesus Christ. Yes, he's going to save the world. And yes, he's upholding all the created order by the word of his power. And yes, he's got a few things on his mind. But Jesus is going to answer her requests. Jesus, out of great compassion, is going to answer her request. And he's going to save this family from humiliation. He's going to do this as he makes a grand statement about who he really is and what he's come to do. I love how Mary responds, and there's a great lesson here for us. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So Mary, I think Mary hears the latent yes in Jesus' response. I love what Martin Luther says. He says, when God says no, there is always a latent yes. God says no here, but you can be sure He's opening a door over here. If God says no here to His child, it's because He's got a better door for them to walk through, and He's going to open this door over here. There's a yes over here. This is no. That's not what I have for you. This is for you. This is yes. There's a perfect example of that. Do you remember, do you remember uh, King David? The Lord had given him victory on all sides and he had peace uh, on all sides of, of, of his borders. And he desired to build the temple for the Lord. Do you remember? But what did God say? No. You're not going to build my temple. Your son Solomon is going to build my temple. But what did the Lord say to David? The Lord said, I will establish your throne forever. So there was a no there. But in the no was this awesome promise. And what I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, sometimes God's going to say no to you. He just is. Because you and I are going in the wrong direction. We're not going in the direction that God has for us. Okay? What you and I need to do is receive that no and start looking for the yes. Because I want to tell you, if God has said no to you, there's a yes on the way. There is a yes on the way. He has something for you that will fill your heart and your soul like you have never imagined. The yes is coming. The yes is on its way. And I want to give you a personal testimony here. The hardest day I ever lived, I remember the day. Uh, the greatest heartache. Um, I couldn't cry anymore that day. I remember that day. But shortly thereafter, that day, the yes came. 
the thing that I had been dreaming about for a long time, the thing I had been praying about for a long time, God gave to me. I went through a trial, and there was a big no, and there was a lot of pain, but as I simply trusted God, Romans 8.28, believing that He was working all things for the good of those who love Him, those called according to His purpose, I simply trusted God and the yes came. And what I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, is the yes will come. Be patient. Wait upon the Lord. Trust the Lord. I love what one of my seminary professors used to say. He says, if you knew what God knew, you wouldn't change anything. Do you believe that? I believe it. If you knew what God knew about you and about your life and about what's coming down the pike, you would not change one thing. So Christian friend, don't be slow to learn this lesson. When God says no, you just start looking for the yes. You trust Him. That no is perfect. You trust Him that the no is perfect. And you begin to look for the yes. And I love, again, what Mary does. Mary says, okay, you just do what He says. You do whatever He says. Because whatever He says will be right. Do you trust God like this? Friends, I want to challenge you to learn how to trust God like this. Whatever God does is right. Even if it's hard, it's right. He's working for the good of his children. And, I, and Mary says, hey, just do what he says. And this is real life in the real world. Mary just gives it to God and says, whatever he says, you do it. Do you have real faith? Do you trust God like that? Do you trust God like that? Do your friends see you trusting God like that? Do your coworkers see you trusting God like that? Do, you, do your children see you trusting God like that? Does your spouse see you trusting God like that? It's a beautiful lesson for us to learn. I love what Romans 10, 11 says. It says this beautiful thing. Those that trust in Him shall not be what? Ashamed. Those who trust in the Lord shall not be ashamed. And I love how the message paraphrases it. The message says it like this. No one who trusts God like this with heart and soul, will ever regret it. Will ever regret it. Amen. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 to 30 gallons. Now this is water that's used to wash the feet of the guests and to be used for the purification of the hands and to, up to the elbows of the Jews. This is how they ate they would wash their hands down to their elbows and they would wash their hands down to their elbows again on the next course. And so they went through a lot of water. And so there's a lot of water on the scene. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to Him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called <coughs> the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. So you've got to put yourself in these servants' shoes. Jesus says, Fill up the water pots with water. And then he says, 
draw it out and take it to the head waiter. Now, you've got to put yourself in these guys' shoes. You've got to wonder what these guys are thinking. They do it. They, they follow Mary's instructions. He, she says, do whatever he says. They do it. They take it to the head waiter. They take it to the head waiter. And it's the best wine he's ever tasted. Do you know why it's the best wine he's ever tasted? God made it. So how do you make wine? Well, wine comes from grapes, right? Grapes, comes, grapes come from, from a vine. These vines come from seeds. These seeds need earth, water, and sunlight, and nutrients and minerals. And then we have wine. But this wine was never a grape. It was never on a vine. It was never a seed. It never grew in the sun. This wine was created by the, by the power of God. It's just simply by the creative power of God. Jesus said, let it be wine, and it was. It was perfection in a glass. And some people want to say, well, this is kind of a trivial thing for God to use His power on. This is kind of a trivial thing for God to use His power on. And you know, friends, uh, if you read the, the, the Gospels, they tell us that Jesus did more miracles than could be recorded um, in the Gospels. He did a, an incredible number of miracles, but Jesus never did miracles simply to entertain men. Jesus didn't perform for men. When Jesus did a miracle, there was a good reason for it. And there is a good reason for Jesus to turn water into wine. This is not some trick that He's trying to, to show the people who He is. God doesn't do tricks and God doesn't perform for men. God says, this is who I am. And then God says to men, believe. God's not in the business of, of entertaining. God simply says, I am that I am. Believe. And Jesus is in the process here of proclaiming that He is I am. Jesus says, believe. Believe. And again, I'm going to remind you why John wrote the Gospel. Why did he write the Gospel? That you and I might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing we might have what? life, okay, that we might have life. So, let me tell you why this is not a trivial miracle. Let me tell you why it is perfect. The first miracle of Jesus is not random. It is not uh, a happenstance. It is not by coincidence. He didn't just get backed into a corner, but the venue here is perfect, who is the bride of Christ? The church. Isn't it interesting that the groom has come? The groom has come for his bride. And he does his first miracle at a wedding. He does his first miracle at a wedding. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, and he has come for his Bride, Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God wants us to get this. The, the groom has come for His bride. Jesus says, I have come for My people. 
I have come for my bride. He does his first miracle at a wedding because God has come for his bride. The symbolism here is beautiful. The symbolism here is extremely meaningful. And let me tell you about the wine. Probably some of you already know. You remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 22? He said, No one puts new wine in old wine skins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Why do you think Jesus turns water into wine? Why do you think this is His first miracle? Anybody have any idea? Jesus is the wine. Jesus is the new wine. And Jesus has come to put dead, boring, perfunctory, legalistic religion out of business. No more dead religion. And brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you this. It was The Jews had taken the Word of God and they had turned it into a dead, legalistic religion. System. And you know what men have done since the birth of the church? Men have done much the same thing. Many churches, called Christian churches, are no more than dead religion. This is what men do. Men like to take the true revelation of God and turn it into something that's dead. You know why? Because they can manage it. Because then they can manage it. If it's dead and legalistic and it's keeping rules then we can manage God. We can keep God in the box. Jesus says, I have come for my bride. I am the new wine. No more dead religion. No more dead religion. The groom has come, and I bring the new wine with me. I think this is, brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. Some of you who know your Old Testament, you know that wine often symbolized intense joy. Let me just read one verse, Zechariah 10.7. It's a prophecy about Christ, and it says this, Our hearts will be glad as if from wine. Our hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Every Jew knew this. Every Jew knew the symbolism of the Old Testament wine. Every Jew knew this. Jesus had just turned water into wine. The Messiah is here. The Messiah has come for His people. He has come to give His people true joy. We're not talking about dead religion anymore. We're not talking about keeping rules anymore. The Jews had 600 rules they had to keep every day. Jesus said, I'm putting dead religion out of business. The groom is here. The groom is here. And I want to say to you, friends, this is the perfect first miracle of Jesus. Jesus has come to fill your soul. You know um, what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11? This beautiful thing. It says, God has set eternity in our hearts. Do you know that verse? It says, God has set eternity in our hearts. Guess what? If God has set eternity in your hearts, Guess, guess who is the only being who can fill you up? I want to tell you, friends, most of you know this already. It's nothing in the world. It's nothing in the world. Your job can't fill you up. 
Your possessions can't fill you up. Your money can't fill you up. Your spouse can't fill you up. You may love your spouse and you may have the best marriage on the planet, but they cannot fill you up. Your children cannot fill you up. God says, I've put eternity in the hearts of man and I'm the only one who can fill up the heart of man. I am the only one. And this is Jesus is saying when he comes and he comes to the wedding, he says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here to fill you up. I'm here to fill you up like new wine with joy inexpressible. You remember what Jesus prayed in John 15 and John 17. I've always marveled at these verses. And I love these verses. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy will be in you. Did you hear what he said? Okay, how big is the joy of God? How big? Infinite and eternal. Jesus says, I give you my joy. Jesus says, I give you my joy. I, I was sharing with the, the group um, <clears throat> last Sunday night. There was a book that came out a couple years ago, and the author says, you know, you walk into most churches, and what you find are bored Christians. And uh, he's right. If you walk into most churches in America, you've got people just showing up and doing what they think they're supposed to do, and then they get their stuff, and they go home. But what I want to say to you, with genuine Christianity, there will be no boredom. If you're bored, it's your fault. You're not pursuing Him. You're not studying His Word. You're not spending time alone with Him. It's an oxymoron to, to, to use the term bored Christian. Joy, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that my joy will be in you and it will be made full. This is the Word of God. And Jesus comes to a wedding and He turns water into wine and He says, Happy day, your Savior's here. Happy day, your Savior's here. And I come to bring you the joy you were created to have. Let me just, I'm finished, but I want to share one verse with you. There's that great text over in Matthew 13. Go read Matthew 13 this week. Matthew 13 is, is a number of parables about what true conversion looks like. About what it means to really be a Christian. Okay, What it really looks like in, a, in, in real life. And I love Matthew 13, 44. Here's what it looks like in a real Christian's life. Friends, and, and I don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we don't struggle and we don't have hard days and we don't cry. We bury our children. We have tragedies. Yes, these things occur, but we have a joy that will persevere through all of these difficulties. But look at what happens to this man in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. There's a ton of theology there. Jesus Christ is to be your treasure. Is He your treasure? If He's not your treasure, you don't have it figured out yet. If something is more important in your life than Jesus Christ, and you, don't, you haven't gotten there yet, you don't fully understand what Jesus is saying about Himself. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's hidden in a field, that was hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and then from what? Does anybody have the text? From joy, from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Now there's a man who's seen Jesus Christ. There's a man who has glimpsed Jesus Christ. If you have truly seen him, a new joy has been born in your heart. A new treasure 
has been born in your heart. All men everywhere, at every time, at every place have sought for their own happiness. It's what men do. In fact, God wired us to seek for our own happiness. The problem is where you, most of us may be seeking that happiness and most of mankind is seeking that happiness apart from God. We were made to find our joy in God. C.S. Lewis is right. And if I don't miss my guess, there's one or more of us in here who have settled for something less than God. Some of us have settled for something less than God. And I want to close with Isaiah 55, verses 2 and 3. God says to us, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And why do you spend your wages on that which does not satisfy you? God says, listen carefully to me. He says, eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Then he says this, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Jesus Christ has come. He has come for his bride. He has come to bring joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. I thank you for this this beautiful miracle, Lord, as we're reminded that You have come for Your people, that I Am has arrived, I Am has become flesh, the great eternal God has condescended and He has become a man. And He is walking the earth and He is making Himself known to all who have eyes to see and ears to hear, all who will come to Him with an open heart. He says, I bring you joy. I bring you life. Oh God, if there be any of us in here who are finding our satisfaction in something other than you, Father, I pray that you would convict us about that. Father, I pray that that we would find our greatest joy, our greatest pleasure, our greatest delight in none other than Your Son. Oh God, help us to receive this, this awesome revelation. No more dead religion. Father, no more dead religion for anyone in this room. No more dead religion. Father, we are hungry for true spirituality. We are hungry for true life. And oh Lord, we have found it in your Son. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's sing our closing chorus. It's on the bottom of your song sheet. Let's stand and sing it together. <clears throat>